0: The Compelling Words Podcast. The Word of God is meant to move us. It's meant to call us to action. Listen in as Kevin Purdy teaches and presents a genuine and compelling message from the Word of God. One of the most recognized buildings in the world was built in the fifth century. It was an ancient Greek symbol of power, of wealth, and of culture. It's called the Parthenon. And it still stands in Athens today. Originally, it was a temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Athena. Inside was a shrine with a statue of her, this magnificent It was 39 feet tall, carved out of wood, but covered with gold and ivory. The Parthenon may have been the most recognized and the most prominent, but it wasn't the only temple in Athens. And Athena was just one of a whole host of gods and goddesses that the people of Athens believed in and worshipped. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is traveling on his second missionary trip. We talked last Sunday about his first missionary trip, which was the first missions trip of the church. This is his second missionary trip. He was in Thessalonica preaching Christ, but there was opposition and it actually caused a riot in the city. So Paul and Silas are sent to Berea. And there in Berea, Paul's preaching Christ, and the message was received very well. It says that many Jews came to faith in Christ, and so did some of the Greek men and women. But then, some of the Jews who had been in Thessalonica, who didn't like what he was preaching, now follow him to Berea, and they come there just to stir up more problems, just to cause more disruption. So Paul is sent to Athens for safety. He sent to Athens for protection. we got to get him out of here because they had this riot in Thessalonica. Those men followed him to Berea. They're causing trouble here, so let's send Paul off to Athens so he could be safe. Athens was a city of beauty and affluence. It was known for its culture. It was known for its education. It was known for fine arts. It was home to some great philosophers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Athens was the birthplace of democracy. They were a city-state led by elected officials who were accountable to the people. They were a diverse and pluralistic society. But remember, Athens was full of idols. Paul would have seen the Parthenon as it loomed large on the highest point of the city. It has been said that in Athens, there were more gods than people. Pliny the Younger was a lawyer and an author from ancient Rome. And in his writings from that time, he estimated that there was no fewer than 73,000 different gods in Athens. Paul was in Athens waiting for his missionary companions, but he was surrounded by this forest of idols. And it broke his heart. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 and 17 says this. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. I wonder, I wonder what do we feel when we see misplaced faith what do we feel when we see misplaced faith what do we feel when we see fame and fortune being idolized what do we feel when we see when we when sin is considered something good even something commendable What do we feel when we see people who have this distorted view of God? What does that make us feel like when we recognize that? When we see misplaced faith or people lifting up celebrity and icon and power and prestige and making a God out of it? What do we see, what do we feel when sin is commended and applauded? How does that cause us to feel? The Bible tells us that Paul was greatly distressed. He was bothered by what he saw. He was troubled by it. It made him angry. It irritated him. It made him sad. It broke his heart. And therefore, Paul couldn't and he wouldn't stay silent about it. The Bible tells us that he reasoned with them. He didn't ignore it, and he didn't talk at them, he didn't talk against them, he talked with them. I think that is worth paying attention to, because if someone is way off base with what they believe, we're not going to help them see the truth if we just talk at them. If we just condemn, criticize, we're not going to help them if we just talk at them. We need to talk with them. With reason and with love and respect, First Timothy 6:11 tells us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Titus 3:11 tells us to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. Second Timothy two, verse 24 through 25 tells us, "The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, and that opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. I see way too many Christians who get frustrated when people have different thoughts, different beliefs, different values, and rather than try to be gentle about it and reason with them, they just want to attack them and put them down and call them worthless and say all this harsh, Critical things. That's not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible calls us to this gentleness. Yes, Paul was greatly distressed by the overwhelming idol worship that was happening in Athens. But his response wasn't an all-out verbal assault with criticism and condemnation. He talked with them, and he gave them reason for the faith. Here's what happened. In Acts chapter 17, verse 18 through 21, it says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. As Paul is speaking and teaching about Jesus and the resurrection, this group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, Epicurean philosophy was a hedonistic teaching. It was all about seeking pleasure. You try to avoid pain, and you try to fill up with pleasure. They didn't deny God. They didn't deny any God. They didn't deny one God or many gods, but they believed that whatever God or gods there were, they weren't relevant. They weren't involved in our lives. They were irrelevant. Stoicism was more popular among the Greeks, Greeks, and they had a pantheistic view of God. God was in the universe. God was the universe. God was everything. Life's determined by fate, and we are meant to live in harmony with logic and with nature, trying to learn how to be self-sufficient. Paul was preaching to them Jesus and the resurrection, and this was something new. This was something different. Of all the 73,000 different gods that they had, this was something new. This was something new. Different, And they wanted to know more. So they p- took Paul to a meeting at the Areopagus. Now that's a combination. It's a big, complicated word, Areopagus. But it's a combination of the Greek word for god of war and stone. The Greek god of war was Ares. The equivalent of that in Roman mythology is Mars. So this location was also called Mars Hill. It was a hilltop area that was covered with stone and it was used as a meeting place. It was a public forum for debates, for discussions, for trials. People would sit on the stones and they would listen to the most respected and most influential teachers and leaders debate and have all these discussions with philosophy and different ideas. Now, Paul wasn't taken there under any formal charges. So Paul's there, but he's not on trial. He's there because they're curious. They want to know more about what he's been talking about. He was there because they wanted to hear what he had to say. So Paul embraced the opportunity. And the speech that he gives on Mars Hill is the most dramatic and the most popular of all the sermons that, given by the Apostle. And let's read through it. It's in Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through 31. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. Here in this city, here at this place, this mountaintop, hilltop area, the people loved to talk and debate and discuss all these philosophical ideas. People loved to hear new thoughts and new ideas. So they were open to hear what Paul had to say. And the first thing that Paul says to them could actually be considered a compliment. He actually says something that's kind of complimentary towards them. He said, I can see that you're very religious. They're in the shadow of the Parthenon. There's statues everywhere he turns. He says, look, I can see that you are very religious. You see, Paul acknowledged that they were thinking beyond this world. They believed in spiritual things. There's a large number of people today that claim to be spiritual but not religious. We're spiritual, but not religious. They believe in God, but it might not really impact how they live. Or they believe in some type of higher power, but not necessarily the God of the Bible. They'll pray, but it's pretty equivalent to just making a wish. Or it's more like the power of positive thinking. They have deep thoughts and deep convictions. They have their own set of traditions and practices. God or angels or spirits or anything supernatural, alien or metaphysical. It all becomes a personal belief based on their own opinions or a mixture of different beliefs. It's considered spiritual because it's contemplative. It's considered spiritual because it's a belief beyond the physical. In Athens, they acknowledged hundreds, thousands of different gods, different spiritual beliefs. They even left room for a God who was unknown. And Paul says, that's who I'm going to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about this God that you don't know. I want to talk to you about this unknown God. What do you do when someone has mixed up Or an incorrect understanding of God. You you talk with them. You talk with them and you teach them who God really is. And that's exactly what Paul does. He told them that the God that they didn't know, this God that they were saying was an unknown God, he's telling them that is the one and only true God. Now this speech that he gives... In our English NIV Bible, it's only about 270 words long. It's quite likely that this is just a summarized outline of what Paul actually said. The speeches in the Areopagus were known to be long. They were typically two to three hours long. We just read through this in just a couple minutes. This is probably just a summary. Even if it's just a summary, though, it still gives us enough to know the content of what he was saying. And even if it's just a summary, we know from everything that Paul spoke and wrote, we know the message that he was giving. Paul was teaching, preaching Jesus, the resurrection. It's the Christian faith, it's the gospel, it's Jesus as Lord and Savior. This summary, though, focuses on some of the key doctrines of the faith. In verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in a temple built by human hands. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. God is the creator, God is the author of all life. God is above all. He cannot be contained, He cannot be restrained. He isn't limited to a shrine or to a temple. You know, many of the products that we buy today, if you look at them, there's a stamp on them somewhere that says, Made in somewhere. A lot of times, China. We feel good, though, when we can buy something and it says, Made in the USA. You know, some companies have taken that even a step further. I've seen products where if you look, it'll say, Made in in, country, by, and it'll give a person's name. It gets that specific. That's kind of neat, I think. But you know, when we look at creation, all of it, quite literally, has the stamp, made by God. God is the author. God is the creator. God is the owner. God called the universe into existence. God set the stars in the sky, created land and water. He forged the mountain. He forged the wilderness. God is the one who gave life to the animals, to all of humanity, gave life to you, and gave life to me. In verse 25, Paul says, he's not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself Gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You see, God is 100% self sufficient. God does not need us, but we need Him. God does not need oxygen. He doesn't need air to breathe, but we do. God does not need food or water, but we do. God does not need sleep or shelter but we do. We might like to think that we don't need anyone, even God, but the reality is we need things that we cannot manufacture or provide for ourselves. God does not need us, but we definitely need him because he is the one that gives us life and breath And by his care and by his attention, he continues to sustain the world. Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Paul is emphasizing the authority and the necessity for God. God is not created by man, and God is not distant, far away, uninvolved. And then in verse 27, Paul tells them, he says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Remember how this all started. Remember how Paul got to this moment on Mars Hill. He had been talking, preaching, sharing about Jesus and the resurrection. And these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers wanted to learn more, so they brought him here. Paul has taken this phrase, we are his offspring, From a group from a group of or from a stoic poem about Zeus. That phrase, we are his offspring, was out of a stoic poem about Zeus, and he applied it to his teaching about God. He's teaching that God is not created by us. We are created by him. We are created by God, and therefore we belong to God. That doesn't belong to us. We belong to him. In him we live and move. We just need to reach out to seek him. He's not far from us. Acts 17, verse 29 through 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, since we did not create God, but God created us, We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This right here is the heart of Paul's message. This is what Paul is getting to. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to turn away from their idol worship. The unknown God, the God that they did not know, is the one and only God. And he is not a God who is man-made. Today, the world needs to know the same thing. Those that do not know God... Or those who have a distorted view of who God is need to seek out the truth for who God really is. He is not man-made. He is not a legend. He is not a tradition. He is not a myth. He's the creator and sustainer of all that is. He gave us life. We belong to him and he is worthy of our worship. And idol worship, no matter what shape it takes, whenever we take anything and we worship it above God, that is idol worship. Whenever we take God and we custom make Him into our view of God and make God very personal to us because that's my God, whenever we do that, that is idol worship. And idol worship, no matter what shape it takes, is wrong, and it will be judged. God will be the judge. But he does not judge by what we think is right or wrong. He judges by his standards. He judges with justice by the man that he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Who did God raise from the dead? Who? Yeah, that's who God raised from the dead. It's by Jesus that we are judged. It's by Jesus that we're either saved or we're not. We are either in Christ, saved by grace through faith, or we are outside of Christ and we remain in our sin, destined for punishment. Paul's message to Athens is echoed today. Don't trust the idols of the culture. Trust the Savior who was crucified and then resurrected as evidence of who he is and what he's accomplished. Acts 17, verse 32 through 34 says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Sometimes, some people just cannot believe in the resurrection. They're okay believing that Jesus was just a man. They're okay believing that Jesus taught some good things. They're okay Believing that the Christian faith is a religion that was founded by this man named Jesus who taught these good things. But once we start saying, no, there's more to it than that. Once we start saying, no, there's actually more than just that to it. Once we declare that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he was Lord and Savior, that he was crucified for our sins and he resurrected three days later, then that becomes unacceptable to them. Because that's impossible and that's unrealistic. But if they took the time, and this is what I just can't get my head around if they take the time to look into it, if they take the time and the effort with an open mind and they dig in and they seek the truth, the evidence for the resurrection is very, 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 very very compelling and very, very, very convincing. Do you remember? How this moment for Paul began. He saw these idols and he was greatly distressed. So he began to talk and reason with the people at the synagogue and at the market. Basically, Paul was everywhere talking about Jesus. He was giving the reason for the faith. And the reason for our faith is the resurrection. Let that be the truth that you hold on to. Let that be the truth that you proclaim. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment to rate this podcast. May the word of God be living and active in your life.